0: Welcome to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers podcast, where we share the latest information and views from industry leaders. I'm Liza Berger, editor of McKnight's Home Care. What does it take for a home care firm to succeed in value-based care? Dr. Francesca Rinaldo, an executive at Sharecare, has some ideas. She oversees CareLinks, a digital company that offers an innovative home care model. Welcome to the podcast, Francesca. Thank you, Liza. It's nice to see you. Yeah, great to see you again. Why don't you start out and tell us a bit about Sharecare and the particular home care services offering you oversee, CareLink's.
1: Sure. So Sharecare is a company that was founded by our chairman, founder, and CEO, Jeff Arnold, about 10 years ago. The idea of the company was really to have a place where someone could manage all aspects of their health and wellness in one place. And over the last 10 years, we've made a number of acquisitions and really developed this very comprehensive ecosystem that helps you navigate your healthcare journey sort of wherever you are in that journey, whether it's a state of health, acute or chronic illness. CareLynx was one of the most recent acquisitions by ShareCare. It was acquired in August of 2021. And it really extends sort of the digital nature of the ecosystem that we've created now into the home with a really high touch solution. CareLinks itself is a network of over 450,000 primarily non medical and tech enabled in home caregivers who provide a wide range of services, ranging from companionship and assistance with home helper tasks like meal preparation and transportation to and from medical appointments, all the way up to those higher dependency needs like activities of daily living. So bathing, roping, dressing, mobility, and even toileting for those members who have really high dependency needs. And then we also clinically integrate our programs as well. So we can facilitate telehealth visits. We can facilitate remote patient monitoring. We can help to close gaps in care. And we do that by working very, very closely with care management and clinical teams.
0: That is a lot of caregivers, 450,000. Very impressive. How do you manage all these caregivers? Are they part-time, full-time, everything in between? It's a mix of
1: 1099 and W-2 workers. It varies program by program and state by state. We comply with all state and federal labor laws. It's a combination of people who use the network really as their primary source of work and income. So we have veterans of the healthcare industry who perhaps now are more interested in the flexibility that working on our network offers. And so they really are able to fill their schedules. We also have people who work part-time on the network. So perhaps they're working with a brick and mortar home care agency in their geographic area and they're able to fill the gaps in their schedule on the Carolynx network.
0: So how does this type of company, besides the fact that it's completely virtual, at least your company is virtual, How does it differ from a typical brick-and-mortar home care agency in terms of the type of employment that these workers have?
1: Yeah, so I think there's a number of things that differentiate us. The first thing is we're a national network, so we're in all 50 states. I like to say that essentially we're geographically agnostic because we can serve consumers directly or when we work at the enterprise level or with government programs, we can implement programs in pretty much any market, any geography. The other differentiator is that this is truly a marketplace. So just as caregivers can create a profile and go through the requirements of the vetting and training that they have to complete in order to provide care on our platform, they also are able to choose the jobs that they take and actually interact very closely with the families before they're deployed to the home. So on the member side, on the family side, we have a role called a care advisor who essentially becomes a dedicated point of contact for those families to help them really understand okay what are the needs that you have for care in the home but also what are some of your personal preferences for a caregiver so that could include things like what language do you speak are there any specific cultural considerations that are at play if there's sensitive ADL needs like bathing grooming and dressing do they prefer a male or a female caregiver We take all of those things into consideration. And basically what the care advisor's job is, is to look at the network of caregivers in that geographic area and identify the caregivers who meet not just the requirements of the program, but also the preferences of the patient or the family or member, whatever the case may be. And essentially then hand curates those caregivers and offers them to the families. The families then have the opportunity to interview with the caregivers. And so what's really nice is that it's not just the family sort of choosing the caregivers. It's often the caregivers really having the opportunity to choose who they work with as well, which is very different, as you said, from a brick and mortar home care agency, because typically when those caregivers are deployed, they haven't had the opportunity to interact with the family yet. And really who you get at your door is often a stranger.
0: What have you heard from families in terms of what they appreciate about a service like yours?
1: You know, we work with a lot of families and we have a lot of incredible stories coming out of our programs and even our work directly with consumers. I think one of the really unique things about our caregivers is that they're there to support with those very tangible and immediate needs. But one of the other aspects of their work is really to provide that Companionship, that engagement, that emotional support for the person receiving care. And hands down, that's some of the most frequent feedback that we get from the care recipients and their families. They really bond with these caregivers because the caregivers are able to physically help them, but they also say, you know, they're there to sort of emotionally support me as well.
0: So, as large as the organization is and with as many caregivers as you can, it still sounds like it's a very local. Endeavor. It is.
1: We're actually able to do very detailed analyses at the zip code level. So when we stand up a program, we can see exactly how many caregivers are registered on the network and also active on the network within that geographic area. And then we basically get the caregivers very excited about taking shifts or taking jobs with families in that local area by promoting those programs. Mm
0: -hmm. And in terms of competition, do you see yourself as a home care agency that is competing locally with other organizations? How would you peg yourself or what kind of niche are you? You know, I
1: would say that we're operating at scale in homes across the nation and certainly workforce challenges are very, very prevalent right now. And so we're often asked the question, well, are you competing for labor with some of those local agencies. But I would say that really we're just giving some of the most important resources in the US healthcare system, which is non-medical caregivers. And I say this often, but I truly believe they are the most undervalued resource in the American healthcare system. We're giving them the flexibility to work in different types of environments. And in this case, very much a gig economy.
0: Who is a typical client of Carelinks? So it varies.
1: We serve consumers directly, and that's really how we started as a company. We're sort of born out of the experiences of a family caregiver who was really having trouble finding that reliable and vetted source of caregivers. And so we really became that on a direct-to-consumer basis. But as we've seen Some really interesting innovation happening on the Medicare Advantage side, for example, with the regulatory changes, expanding the CMS definition of health-related supplemental benefits. We've been doing an enormous amount of work in MA. We work with government programs, and we even work with large employers.
0: Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit about MA. Is that your biggest payer source at this point? It currently
1: is. Today we have about 2.25 million Medicare Advantage members who have access to CareLinks in-home services through their supplemental benefits.
0: So basically they're receiving that home care non-medical supplemental benefit. Yes. That's really interesting. And what would you say are the benefits and also the drawbacks of this particular supplemental benefit, if we could just talk a little bit about it, frankly?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think part of what got me really, really excited about the regulatory changes for MA and really expanding that definition of what constitutes a supplemental benefit is the recognition that in-home support is needed, right? We know that the vast majority of older adults want to age in place, but they often don't plan for or have the resources available to them to make that a reality and be able to stay safely in their homes and communities until the end of their lives. And so I think offering in-home support services, which by the way is the fastest growing category of supplemental benefits in Medicare Advantage, is really a recognition that we need to do more to support our members. I think one of the drawbacks is that as a benefit, we're offering them a limited number of hours, and I know that there's a lot of members out there who require more care, but what I often see our services is a bridge to a more permanent solution, and so we often will work with care management teams and even social workers to find those longer-term solutions using CareLink's caregiving services really trying to maximize the use of the member of those hours that they have available and then finding another solution for them when those hours are exhausted.
0: And like, what would be another solution or or as you say, a more long-term solution?
1: Well, often there's local resources or services that are available. We work with a lot of area agencies on aging who offer resources to local families who perhaps have a very heavy level of responsibility for someone who's chronically ill in their family. So usually it's at a more local level.
0: Mm -hmm. There have been complaints that it's all well and good that this benefit is available. But like you said, it's quite limited. And really, what's the point? Some people say it's just not enough to cover people's basic needs. What do you say to that criticism?
1: You know, I think whenever we're talking about innovation and healthcare and specifically the movement from fee-for-service to value-based care, we always have to acknowledge that these types of innovations, these types of changes in the way that we really deliver healthcare can be extremely challenging and also complicated. I'm seeing a lot of incredible work being done even with the limited hours in some of these benefits, the work that we're doing, we're not just going in and supporting the member with those ADLs, but we're actually going into the home, observing the home environment, identifying unmet social needs, helping the members close gaps in care, or helping them even schedule and get to an annual wellness visit which we know is going to be really important for delivering long-term clinical outcomes. So I think, yes, while it's unfortunate that we have to limit these benefits, there's still an incredible amount of good that can be done even in those short visits in the home.
0: Mm -hmm. And as you say, this might just be the first step in an evolution of the benefit. Exactly. So I have to bring this up is that another common complaint of MA is they don't pay enough and they don't pay on time. To what extent have you experienced this?
1: You know, again, I think that there's a lot of complicated considerations when you're talking about the movement from fee for service to value-based care. And unfortunately, not all members' experiences, consumer of healthcare experience is always going to be optimal. I do think that there, again, is a lot of evolution, a lot of progress being made in the way that we deliver services. And I'm really hopeful
0: that that evolution will continue to
1: offer a really excellent healthcare consumption experience to our members.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you make of the development that actually fewer plans are going to be offering in-home support services in 2024? To what extent has this affected your business?
1: It hasn't affected us, but what I'm seeing in the market is that with the changes to risk adjustment protocols, as well as a lot of plans taking a big hit on STARS measures this year, there's been a lot more scrutiny on the value that's being delivered by these services, specifically the in-home care benefits. I think we're actually extremely well positioned in this sense because our caregiving programs yes, are going in and providing really that tangible ADL, IADL support, but we also drive an enormous amount of value by doing some of the other activities that I've mentioned, like engaging the member on closing gaps in care, doing very detailed health risk assessments that are both clinical and non-clinical to identify unmet needs and really close those gaps and really ensure that members are getting the care that they need, again, to reduce the probability of long-term poor outcomes and specifically avoidable acute care utilization. We're seeing incredible results in some of our transitional care programs where when we send a non-medical caregiver into the home in the immediate post-acute care period, We've actually shown with one of our health plans that even just 15 hours of care in the first 60 days after a hospital or a skilled nursing facility discharge can lead to about a 20% reduction in 30-day hospital utilization events. So again, a lot of value that's being delivered on care gap closure, on impacting quality measures and avoiding acute care utilization. So. Overall, I think we're very well positioned to address some of the immediate needs of the market.
0: What about traditional Medicare? Are you working with them? Have they expressed an interest in working with you? And do you think that traditional Medicare in a way is getting left behind? So I think traditional Medicare is going through its own evolution
1: and really the push for Medicare beneficiaries to be wholly in value-based care arrangements by 2030 is driving that. We do work with some special populations that are Medicare eligible. So we have some community-based programs where we worked with families who are caring for chronically ill and functionally impaired, older adults who are in Medicare plans, not Medicare Advantage plans. We do a lot of work with the VA, and we know that a lot of veterans are Medicare eligible. So really, it's very specific to some certain populations, the current Mm -hmm. work that we're doing.
0: I also wanted to ask about your growth trajectory. Obviously, you are just massive, but what are you thinking about in terms of what's the next big thing? Are you going to perhaps venture into medical care or hospital at home or any of these other areas?
1: That's a great question. We have some really exciting things on our roadmap over the next 12 to 24 months. One of the things that we've realized is that there's been sort of a shifting focus, even by health plans, to support their providers who are in value-based care arrangements. And we really see CareLinks as a way to support those providers, help them grow their practices by better managing risk, specifically by having those wraparound services to support the high-risk members in the home, provide that ADL support, but also help to extend the clinicians into the home, right, by, again, closing those gaps in care, making sure that follow-up care is happening, that chronic care management is happening. So really, we're very excited about moving into that space, and we're going to be doing that very rapidly in 2024.
0: And then finally, I want to talk a little bit about you, because you have a very interesting background. You are extremely expert in the field of medicine, and I was wondering if you could talk to me in the audience listening just about how you got to where you are and where this passion for home care came from.
1: Sure. So I'm a physician scientist by training. I actually train in clinical specialty in general surgery. And while I was in my training, I became very, very frustrated with some of the problems that I was seeing around me. Specifically, I was seeing some really terrible outcomes for older adults. And a lot of them were really, honestly, fully preventable if there had just been another layer of support in the home or awareness. And also my ability as a clinician to address social determinants of health, right? Because no matter what I was doing as a clinician, it always seemed like there were these pitfalls that I just didn't have the bandwidth or resources to address. And I really started to look around me and say, you know, does anybody else see this as a problem? And especially when you're a provider in a fee-for-service system, your job is really just to crank, (laughs) right? (laughs) To see as many patients as possible, to care for as many people as possible, and you don't have the time or the resources to address those needs, unfortunately. It's a really unfortunate aspect of the way that we practice medicine and deliver healthcare today which is why I'm so excited about value-based cares because value-based care arrangements really give you the opportunity to look at some of those areas a lot more closely and integrate those into your clinical practice. In any case, I was working in the ICU, (laughs) admitting probably seven or eight older adults a day for really preventable causes like Falls at home with traumatic brain injuries, multiple orthopedic injuries, and just really seeing these terrible trajectories play out. And no one was doing anything about it. So I actually hit pause on my academic surgical career. And I spent two years as a postdoctoral fellow at the Stanford Clinical Excellence Research Center, specifically focused on studying what we were calling the late life population. So these are high need older adults with multiple chronic conditions and some level of functional impairment and really trying to develop what we thought of as an optimized model of care for those patients. And part of my focus there was really on innovative models of home-based care because, again, we knew that most people wanted to stay in their homes. The outcomes are actually better when care is delivered in the home rather than in a hospital. Especially for some populations like Alzheimer's patients or people with other types of cognitive impairment, they typically get a lot worse when they get into the hospital because of delirium and a number of other factors. So, after I spent two years studying these models in home care, I really saw that as the future of healthcare and pretty much just pivoted my entire career to move into industry. And I've been working as the chief medical officer of our CareLink solution and really driving clinical and growth strategy since September of 2021.
0: You're just living your dream in a certain way.
1: Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I get to work on the things that I'm really passionate about every day.
0: That's wonderful. Well, I am so glad we talked and I hope that we can chat again soon.
1: Thanks, Liza. It was really nice chatting with you too.
0: This was Dr. Francesco Rinaldo, who is Senior Vice President of Clinical Product Innovation for ShareCare. Thank you for listening to McKnight's Home Care Newsmakers Podcast. For the latest in home care news, visit McKnight'sHomeCare.com.